0: Welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the material cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series.
1: Hello and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, Anna Pichowski. Um My guest is the infamous Dr Anna Posharsky. She is a material scientist, podcaster, author and maker. Anna has just released a book entitled Handmade, covering her search for meaning through making. The book covers 10 traditional and unexpected materials in new ways and delivers a few surprises along the way. Anna, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I read your book last week, and uh, I have to say, not since Terry Pratchett have I laughed so much at footnotes. <laughs> I'm so pleased. With that. What a glowing review. <laughs> In the book, we get to know you and your family quite well, as well as the materials. Did you expect it to be quite
0: so personal when you started? No, definitely not. When I started writing the book, my original proposal was pretty much just for a kind of straightforward popular science book about materials. And it wasn't until I really sat down and started the writing process that I realised that this was actually going to become a bit more of a memoir than I had anticipated, because... Once I started really thinking about these 10 different materials that are in the book, I started noticing how they were intersecting with my own life. And so those personal stories started coming out. And eventually, you know, some of the chapters, the whole story of the chapter is not to do with science at all, but it's to do with, as you say, the more personal sides of the materials. So it's become more of an autobiography than I originally intended. One of the distinctions that I think makes this book different is the fact that I'm writing it from a bit of a different perspective from other popular science books. What I didn't want to do was write a book as if I am the expert with all of this expert knowledge, and here you are. I'm giving it to you, the public. You're welcome. Here's my gift. <laughs> um, I, to me, that's a really awkward power dynamic that I don't enjoy, and I don't, I don't like that power dynamic. So what I wanted to do was to instead put my side on the side of the readers and say, I don't know anything about craft either. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know anything about pottery or blacksmithing or stone masonry. Let's learn together. And so what I hope readers get from this is that, you know, we really are on this journey together. And I start from a point of naivety in terms of the story of the book and what I'm hoping to achieve. And after you know I do bring the science, I do bring my expertise in, of course, but all of the science that's in there is there for a reason it's and it's there as part of the story at no point, actually on a couple of occasions, but generally, I try to avoid saying, and here's an interesting scientific fact because if it's not relevant to the story, it doesn't need to be there so I've really tried to keep the storytelling as as central to the to the narrative momentum as possible but on occasion i do say oh here's an interesting thing about how glass is made now just because sometimes i can't help myself because <laughs> it really is interesting but in general i really think that science is not inherently interesting and we should never we should never assume that our readers are going to be interested in what we've got to say it's our job as storytellers to convince them using narrative and using kind of personal stories and bring the science in there but never never make let it be the main focus excellent so the text does thread a fine line
1: between discussing your travels and informing about the technical side of materials it balances a lot of information alongside plenty of fun facts um I love that you mentioned Agricola. We've got a copy in the IOM3 library and it's wonderful. What little fact did you discover that was new to you while you
0: were out researching the book? Well, I hope that my former professors at my uh, undergraduate are not going to be listening to this because I'm sure a lot of the stuff that I'm going to say is new was actually taught to me at undergraduate <laughs> and i just forgotten it all afterwards. But um, I think one of the main things that I was delighted to discover slash possibly rediscover Was the kind of quantum mechanical origins of transparency in glass. Because we take for granted that glass is transparent. It's the main reason that we use it as a material, you know, windows and eyeglasses and pint glasses, even. And as scientists, we celebrate the fact because it allows us to see our experiments and what's going on inside test tubes and and beakers and things. So the transparency of glasses is often taken for granted, and we look through it and never really at the material. And so when I was sitting down to write about the the scientific origins of transparency, there are so many different layers to it. You know, firstly, you've got the fact that it's it's not a crystalline material. It's an amorphous molecular structure. And um, I'm sure that listeners to this podcast will be familiar with those terms. But just in case they're not, it means that the atoms are not lined up in kind of rigid crystalline sort of very distinct rows and columns like they would be in a metal but actually in a glass they're sort of a just dis- a jumbled disordered mess and that means that there's no sort of internal interfaces and places for light to get scattered and so it's it, light is generally able to pass through glass because of this uniform and continuous but disordered molecular structure So that's one layer. But then there's also the fact that because light is an electromagnetic wave and the components of atoms are electrically charged, specifically electrons, light interacts with those subatomic particles. And so all of a sudden, I found myself having to sort of remember my quantum mechanics and and sort of um, the chemistry of atoms and how electrons behave inside materials to explain really why, why glass is transparent, how come light can travel through it but also how come light is bent by glass and and isn't completely unaffected as it goes through. So that was a really delightful chapter to kind of reignite my curiosity about the very subatomic realm of materials.
1: And you kept saying through the book that you weren't going to take us down into the quantum
0: Regions. I know, I really wanted to avoid it, but there were two occasions. <laughs> yeah, in the glass chapter, I say, I'm sorry, I know I, I promised that we wouldn't do this, but actually it's quite interesting. So I'll take us down here for a couple of pages, but then we'll then we'll come back into the, the engineering realm. And then again, later on in the book, there's one other time when we have to do that. But in general, I prefer to avoid the the very, very small.
1: <laughs> yeah, see, quantum, it creeps up on you. It does. <laughs> When you least expect it. Um, Bringing you out of the quantum world again, what was the strangest
0: experience that you had while you were off on your making adventures? Oh, my gosh. I mean, so many. Um, One of the funniest was probably being confronted with a herd of 15 Highland cows when I was driving my camper van on Sky and not quite knowing what to do to get them out of the way. (laughs) But um, in terms of sort of the materials and the strangest experiences there, I think... The weirdest thing I made was probably the sugar snake. Sugar is one material that I focus on in the book. And I thought that I was pretty familiar with it as a material in terms of, you know, I've I've baked cakes in my time and I, I very much enjoy consuming sugar. But the experiment that I did with artist Ellie Doney was about kind of revealing what sugar is made of at the atomic level. And so what we did was we got sugar and bicarbonate of soda. And we put it on a little mound of of sand, and douse that sand in liquid fuel, and set fire to it. So it's sort of burning this mound of sugar from underneath. And what happens is, as as those two substances combine as they burn, it forms carbon. So it shows us the carbon that are in the carbohydrates of sugar, and it forms this sort of disgusting, grizzly, blackened snake-like thing and it sort of lifts up off this mound and then sort of ended up sort of falling over and crawling along the desk (laughs) towards us and it was such a strange contrast between this kind of white glittering glitter that we think of as sugar and this grotesque black snake (laughs) that reveals the carbon inside sugar and also water vapor is given off in this reaction as well so there's the carbon, the oxygen and the hydrogen there in hi- in um, carbohydrates.
1: It sounds like it might be my next party trick. Um, I have to admit that the sugar chapter did have particular resonance for me. Now, I have to put it in context that you swam the channel. And so yeah. every hour we're being force-fed sugar in, in effect. <laughs> yeah, I'm not an endurance swimmer, but I am a type 1 diabetic. So I'm familiar with that moment when the world gets a little bit strange and the thing that's going to bring you back is sugar. And also, similarly, I'm veggie too, so I'm, I have the guilty pleasure of a jelly baby. Right, yes, yes. But yeah, what, what really inspired you to, to look at the material forms of it? You know, it's, it's something we encounter daily, but yeah, i have never really thought of it as a material before apart from obviously in terms of explosions from powder yes
0: yes um so I guess there's there's two things there really it's really interesting your experience of sugar is obviously very different from mine and that's one of the themes in the sugar chapter is this kind of duality of sugar you know it's a giver of life but it can also be very dangerous to people and dangerous to people's health so it's it's a really it's a conflicted material. So that's why I think it's so interesting. The reason I wanted to include Sugar is that I knew that I wanted to include one chapter on a food material in some way. And Sugar to me seemed like a good option because as I say, when I started to write the book, I realized that there were all of these intersections with my own sort of life experiences. And I knew that I wanted to write about the Channel Swim. So I sort of thought, well, what, what chapter can I... Can I sort of include that swim in, And one option was um, textiles. So going down the route of sort of swimming costume textiles and the development of textiles throughout history. Another option could have been silicone in terms of, you know, goggles and swimming hats or salt. Even we could have done salt and seawater. But I think for me, sugar, because it was such a dominant force in the swim. And in the book, you know, I describe the highs and the lows (laughs) of of that swim, um, which are very much mediated by sugar. And it was a placebo. It was motivation. And it was it was kind of the thing that really kept time. So every every hour, as you say, we stopped on the swim to consume sugar. And so it was such a dominant material in that experience that that was the reason why it became the swimming chapter.
1: Moving moving on, or maybe staying with sugar. What was your perceived favourite material before you began? And did that change as you became more
0: hands-on with each material? It's so funny because my when I do sort of public talks and things um, to schools, that's always a question people ask is, what's your favourite material? And I've always really struggled to answer it because I feel... I just can't choose. They're they're all just so different. How can you possibly compare, you know, sugar with steel? These these things are just is just totally different and they're all fascinating in their own way. So I feel very conflicted every time I get this question. So I, I'm afraid I won't give you one simple material, but through getting hands-on with these materials and really getting to know them, not just on paper through, you know, nerdy scientific textbooks, but actually throwing a pot on a potter's wheel and forging an iron a steel bar in a blacksmith's forge it was amazing to feel the theories that i knew actually come into play i think my favorite material to work with that i got to work with was probably glass because yes i knew the theories of the glass transition and how it softens as you heat it up over over you know a few hundred degrees celsius but to actually experience that and feel it this it starts as a stiff rigid material and suddenly yields under your hands as you heat it there's, there's no experience like that. And um, actually blowing up a bubble of glass using my lungs was the resistance that you feel when you do that. There's, it's something very visceral. And so that was a completely new experience for me. So, yeah, I mean, all of the making experiences were very different in their own way. But for me, glass was was quite magical, actually. Okay, That sounds fantastic.
1: Um, you reference the women of steel in Sheffield. You talk about Anlisker's involvement in coal, and yet you mentioned being surprised that women were involved in steel production. One thing I've seen being involved in the IOM3 archives and the library is that women were always there. Women were inventors and researchers and hands-on people, but we tend to get written out of history for various reasons political whatever do you think that female scientists bring different factors to play in the sector
0: i always find this kind of discussion really difficult because i really hesitate to other women material scientists you know their their expertise levels are equal to everybody else's so i, I really don't want to single them out as being you know alien beings coming into this world of engineering because as you say that we've always been here and also I really hesitate to lump them into one uniform group as well I know that's not what you're what you're saying at all but I think as as we have a tendency to talk about this it's inevitable that we will say you know women material scientists when actually that group is hugely diverse so so that's the first thing is that I always find this a little bit difficult mm-hmm. all that being said I am a champion of women in material science, obviously, and a champion of of diversity and diversifying our engineering teams. Because one of the things I was hoping to achieve with the book is to demonstrate the amazing experiences that it's possible to have as a material scientist, you know, going land speed racing on the salt flats of Utah, going to work at NASA. And so all these experiences are brought by diverse teams. And so having having diverse teams of people not just through gender but you know race ability all this sort of stuff of course it makes sense that those teams would be strongest if we have a diversity of voices and viewing problems through different lenses is definitely necessary for achieving the best engineering that we can possibly do so i don't really know if that answers your question in terms of women material scientists bringing different factors to the sector but i I, I just do think that it is so important. And one of the stories actually about, you know, challenging this notion of, of macho engineering is the Steele chapter. And I was quite surprised actually after writing the book that steel ended up being the sort of the, the feminist chapter and the female side, because it is seen as such a macho engineering material personality. At least that's how I viewed it um, before writing the book and then i met a female artist blacksmith agnes jones up in glasgow and she totally changed how i viewed the material because her work is all about creating sort of line drawings and feminine forms out of steel bars and so without without her bringing her self to the work and being able to show the feminine side of steel you know we would miss out on the world would miss out on that kind of artwork so yes Yes, women have something to say in material science and engineering and craft and artwork. And that's why it's important that we champion diversity. Thank you. I think
1: one of the things in the book is you do sort of describe materials as having personalities and how how their innate properties can drive our perception of them. And and yes, you talk about how no material is is fully good or bad. So it does anthropomorphise them in, in some way. Hmm. Another thing that struck me about you in reading the book is you're not afraid to reveal your failures yeah. as well as your successes. And it should be said, you're clearly a highly driven, highly successful person. But um you know you talk about embarrassing moments, you talk about things that didn't quite go the way you wanted them to. <laughs> many young women, many young people are scared to try things out or get put off when things go a bit wrong. What's your advice, people in general, about picking themselves up and carrying on even when you're thinking, oh no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I really wanted to include those oh no moments in the book um, because I think it's important that we humanise scientists and engineers in, in culture. You know, In this last year, we've seen the importance of good science communication definitely and and if we're to make ourselves trustworthy as scientists then we need to humanize ourselves and sort of show our fallibility as well so that's why i wanted all that all that stuff to go into the book in terms of advice for people one of the things i have a tendency to do is to talk in channel swimming analogies because <laughs> the experience of swimming the channel is is so relevant to life and i'm sorry if you find this if or if listeners find this annoying but one of the things that you learn when you're doing that sort of training and this is not just applicable to channel swimming in all sorts of training that we do you've always there's always really tough times when you're doing the training you know the the swim is very very cold or the swim is in really rough water or sometimes even you've had enough and you decide to get out and then you kick yourself because you wish that you hadn't got out and one of the things that is going through your mind when you're swimming in the channel for 15 hours is that although it feels bad now you've always done a rougher swim and you've always done a colder swim. You might not have done a longer swim, but you know what it feels like to get out and to give up and to have those experiences in the bag, as it were, sort of in, in that, um, in your sort of personal history to have all those tough training swims, that gives you a reference point for the future. So I think, I suppose my advice is to say that even if you feel like you're on a bit of a tough training swim at the moment, Actually, it's always a valuable experience. And in the future, you'll be grateful for that experience because you'll be able to look back on it and see that you did survive it and were even stronger for it. That brings us on to your postgraduate
1: experience, your time as a student when you didn't experience the best um, from some superiors in the department.
0: Do you think things have improved since then? For me personally, yes. (laughs) It's really difficult for me to say um, because I'm not in that sort of realm of academic research so much anymore. Unfortunately, I think my gut probably says no, because I expect it will take much, much longer for things to really change. And the things that I think will cause that change, I haven't seen implemented. For me, So we're talking about sort of um, harassment in the workplace, really, and workplace bullying, which is a tale as old as time. (laughs) And it's not just sort of confined to where I experienced it, which is within academia. Obviously, it's within um, all sorts of different workplaces. But where I've seen it tackled effectively has been where, where there's a third party that is brought in to be the mediator. So the example that I've been shown was actually at Harvard University, rather than the institution being responsible for mediating any kind of interpersonal disputes between colleagues or students, they have a third, a third party organization that is a completely neutral person, not person, but a completely neutral entity. And then they are the ones responsible for, for mediating and, and for resolving those conflicts. And at the moment, what we see is the the positions of power are held by the institutions and they have all of their own agendas in terms of, you know, who they want to continue to employ, who are the sort of strongest strongest performing colleagues that they want to keep on, um, their own reputation, There's all of these other factors that mean that it's, to- it's so difficult to protect the most vulnerable in those institutions because their voices are not always necessarily valued by the people that should be doing the protecting. So for me, the third party mediators is the only way that we will see these voices actually being heard in a fair forum and the other thing is that quite often i've seen a quote-unquote kind of zero tolerance to this sort of behavior in workplaces and for me that that has often been quite sort of empty words because what does zero tolerance really mean does it mean that you know the first instance that someone has a complaint made against them then that Person is immediately fired. That doesn't seem like a very sort of strong and an adult way to go about things. And yet, that is one way that the solution might be found quite soon. (laughs) Um, I'm not suggesting that, that we go down that route at all, but I think it's important to manage expectations because I remember when I was going through that experience, I saw zero tolerance posters up around my workplace. And it was meaningless because clearly there was tolerance. (laughs) I was seeing quite a lot of tolerance. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, there's so many things that people are doing. And I do think that the only way is up. I think that things will get better. I think that things will get better quite slowly. And that the answer is for everyone to take responsibility for it. In your case, at the end,
1: you took satisfaction in burning the notes where you had recorded. <laughs> and the side of be involved with our library is is kicking you for for doing. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know, it's another property of paper, and we'll we'll live with that. Absolutely. Yeah, flair for the dramatic, I have to say. <laughs> so you, you on this occasion, you went and explored ten materials. Is there one that you really wish you'd managed to explore?
0: Yes, I've been thinking about this a lot. And one of the ones that I nearly explored but didn't was human hair, (laughs) Um, which I know sounds like probably quite a strange material. But there's a few reasons for this. The first is that, like I say, the book is very much wrapped up in various elements of my identity. And I think human hair is such a fascinating material culturally, and in terms of individual identity, the material itself is is you know um, a shape memory polymer, and there's all sorts of other interesting um, materials chemistry involved in it. So that that's one that I that I kicked myself that I didn't do, um, and I might I might do something on it in the future. But the problem with it was that it's a very similar material to wool, so I would have had to have chosen between wool and hair probably, and. The, the story that I would have told would have probably been the story around sexuality, which is what I ended up going down with the paper route. So it wasn't, although it would have been an amazing material in terms of the story of the book, it didn't fit super easily with the other ones. So um, I suppose watch this space. I'll definitely do something with human hair later. I'm, I'm slightly revolted by the thought. of <laughs> But isn't that brilliant? Isn't that amazing how, how just a material can do that? We'd never say that about steel, would we? <laughs> yeah,
1: and also, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of lockdown. You really can't consider people's hairstyles as being any sign of uh, personality <laughs> at the
0: moment. Very true, very true. But isn't it interesting how desperate we all were for a haircut after lockdown? I know I was. And just the the boost to one's mood after a haircut is... it's on the surface very trivial but actually it's hugely psychological in terms of the way that we feel about ourselves and yet it's just a material yeah it's it's that whole relationship with
1: self-image and uh, not not just self-image of society's perception of us absolutely whether it be true or not you are judged
0: by your hair in some ways Definitely, definitely. And I did a lot of reading actually around human hair in terms of its kind of cultural significance. And actually another reason that I chose not to include it in the book is that there is, I felt like I would need to tell the story of experiences that I didn't share. So for example, um, I wanted, I would have wanted to have acknowledged the fact that Afro hair is such a huge part of certain communities, but I didn't feel that I was the right person to tell those stories and I didn't want it to feel tokenistic either. So that's another reason why for me it, it didn't quite fit into kind of the book at the time
1: oh, we will we'll keep an eye on on that uh, moving forward but just mentioned covid it's, it's that thing reading your book there's this sense of total freedom you are leaping in a camper van and heading off up to sky you're spending your weekend doing steel pours and <laughs> learning all sorts of new techniques how did that Actually compare to the last
0: 12 months where none of that's been possible. <laughs> it's quite funny, isn't it? How dated the book has already become, because there's things like train journeys and shaking hands, <laughs> which <laughs> obviously dates it to pre-COVID time So that, that's been quite a funny thing to observe. But um yeah, so the majority of the book was written in 2019. Um the the end of the book was written actually during the first lockdown. So I sort of finalised the manuscript then. I think that's the brilliant thing about reading, you know, is that we can escape to these other times and other worlds just through words. Um, I experience a similar type of escapism with knitting. That's the story of how, like you say, I jump in my campervan van and I take off up to Scotland um, and explore all the kind of knitting crafts and wool crafts that there be, to be found up north. And for me coming back from that holiday, continuing to knit was a way of sort of holding on to those memories almost by muscle memory association. And I think that we can do the same thing with with reading about traveling as well. That that sense of escapism and and sort of time travel and space travel as well. So in terms of my my own experiences, lockdown was very sedentary and stationary, which was a real contrast to the pri- the previous year of writing the book. That being said, the first lockdown was quite welcome because I was able to just properly sit down and finish the manuscript <laughs> and not be distracted by anything else going on. But then after that point, yeah, it's it's been a real contrast. I was able to keep going out in the van, you know, when restrictions permitted. So that was a real lifeline, actually being able to take off at weekends and go down to the beach in the van. Yeah. Rather than take public transport. So I've been, I've been very lucky in terms of my own lockdown experience, but I'm also looking forward to the end of restrictions this summer.
1: Yeah, I have to say that that answers one of my my unanswered questions at the end is is Alan still around and still alive and clearly
0: <laughs> very much so, very much so. Yeah, Alan is still with us, still going strong. Um meet to service actually. But um <laughs> yeah, and, and actually that was really nice in in 2020 I was able to take Alan back up to Scotland again for a couple of weeks. And take my holidays in the UK, so I've been I've been really lucky in terms of my timings of campervan acquisition.
1: (laughs) Excellent! Oh yeah, I'm sure campervans have become more popular uh, during during last year. Yeah, selling was a profit
0: at some point. Yeah, I was just going to say, I could probably sell him for more than I bought him for a couple of years ago. (laughs) But for now, he's not for sale. Definitely not. (laughs) Um, So
1: you're still knitting. Any other material? Obviously, paper's not going to go away either. Any other materials that you're still playing with from this experience?
0: Yeah. So um, during lockdown, I acquired some like a wood carving knife. Uh, and an axe and i actually went off to tower hamlets cemetery park with a, a colleague of mine and we would meet outside and do some spoon carving of an evening in the woods to varying levels of success mostly non-success for me i have to say but one of the things i learned in the book really is that it's not always about the finished product it's it's quite often about the journey and the process of making itself so um, yeah I spent I spent many happy evenings during 2020 in the summer just sitting and making a huge pile of wood carvings on, of um, wood shavings on the floor <laughs> um, and trying to carve wooden spoons so I've kept that a little bit but yeah mostly knitting is the one that I've really taken through and it's really taken off and and has stayed in my life
1: so the the first project you made knitting was this blanket representing your travels. Now I'm not a I'm not a good woolcraft woman, but I I try. So my COVID lockdown involved a blanket for my daughter in three panels that got sewn together. Um and I'm currently in the middle of a Halloween costume for her. Yeah. You know, obviously Halloween's not for many months, but start now. It might be finished. Very wise. I, I very appreciate your foresight there. So the thing that has been nagging at me is you bought pure wool, you bought wool acrylic mixes, you bought pure acrylic. How did you manage the tensions, the number of stitches to make your square square? And
0: have you washed it yet? <laughs> so this blanket project was very much a trial and error job and I learned so much about wool during it. The first lady in the wool shop, when I knitted my first square, said, just put 20 stitches on the needles and do 20 by 20 square. Then I knotted 30 on because I thought (laughs) that I knew better than the expert in the wool shop. Um, So the squares turned out to be quite big. And then when I bought my next ball of wool, I just did 30 again, Um, which actually turned out to be okay because they were similar types of yarn. But once I got going with lots and lots of different types of yarn, when I did thirty across in the needles, it was either a huge square or a really tiny square, because you know the the finer the wool, the smaller your square will be, even if you're using the same needle. so i then I then had to learn about different needle sizes and different gauges and and all of this sort of stuff and so the the blanket as is, is now with probably at least 10 different types of yeah at least 10, probably fifteen different types of wool on it. There's quite a lot of internal strain, (laughs) I would say, between the different squares and the different, yeah, and the different sort of gauges and sizes and stuff. So no, I haven't tried to wash it and I'm hoping that it will never need washing because there's so many different types of materials on there. (laughs) But it definitely taught me a lot about knitting. And now I think I'm pretty much across gauging it right in terms of the number of stitches, but I'd never, never profess to be an expert. Excellent.
1: But, you know, let me know if you do ever wash it and what happens. I will. Are your spoons, the the original spoons that you made in the woodworking workshop, are they still in use? So
0: they've actually only ever been used as purely decorative pieces. (laughs) I've not been brave enough to put them to use. I think this goes back to what we were saying right at the start of the conversation. When you spend all afternoon hand carving a wooden spoon, it becomes an object of preciousness and beauty and pride. And so the thought of using it to make tomato soup to me is quite, <laughs> quite um, viscerally upsetting, actually. And <laughs> um, so at the moment, they're, they're just sort of relics of my of my time advent, um, adventuring in crafts. Um, maybe eventually the sentimental value will go and I'll just use it for, yeah, making a curry or something. But at the moment, they're, they're very much objects to be admired. <laughs> I did. I know that was yeah. I gave it to to some hope to some people that were hosting me in their house on Sky because well, I wanted to give them something lovely, and I had made this poker, and um, it just seemed like the sort of a sort of fitting gift to give them because I also don't have a wood burning fire, so actually, in terms of its utility, I didn't really need it, Um, and it made me happy to be able to give them a gift. Also, it was probably the first object. I think I say this in the book. Probably the first object that I've ever actually made. That has been received by a recipient as with genuine gratitude, not just "oh, that's a lovely handmade card that you've lent, that you've made me," but like actually, "oh wow, that's that's really good, thank you so much." <laughs> Which was a real turning point for me because I've never been a maker, I've never been good at arts and crafts. So to actually have been able to have that experience of giving someone something that they genuinely like, that was a real turning point.
1: Oh, and that's something you 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 say in the book you know if you are a scientist go and try these things that have been relegated to craftiness and if you're a crafter don't be afraid to actually think about it in scientific terms or to, to explore and i think that that for me was quite interesting the the fact that we've yeah we've shoved these things down different routes and made them very distinct Given on distinct values in a way, yet actually these are life skills and things that would have held far more importance in the past.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think materials is such an exciting opportunity to be able to bring these two worlds together, you know, the artistic world and the scientific world. And that's what I've learned through writing the book and interviewing over 70 makers now on my podcast as well. When we have these conversations, we're both looking at the same objects and the same materials, but just through different lenses. And there's a lot of exciting opportunities to learn from each other. Um, And that's what I've hoped to relay in the book is all of the stuff I've managed to learn from the artists and makers.
1: Yeah, and of course, that's where industrial design sort of brings the aspects together and and hopefully makes the world a better place for us. Definitely. So Anna, you've formed the channel. You play the trumpet in a band. You do stand-up comedy. You've been part of a land speed race team out in the desert, worked in labs. Working for Materials World, well. we we'll have to get that in there.
0: Oh, yeah, that's definitely up there with all those other achievements, for sure. <laughs> You've produced this wonderful book. What's next? Oh, great question. Well, I've definitely got my sights on a second book. I'm writing the proposal for that at the moment. So just trying to get my head around the idea of starting this whole long process again. (laughs) I'm really interested in going into more sort of long form journalism potentially as well in terms of my writing. I'd love to sort of go down the sort of media and journalism route professionally. I'd really like to try some more TV stuff. I've done little sort of talking head gigs in terms of sort of commenting on scientific things in various TV shows but I'd love to explore a bit more of that and personally I'm really looking forward to getting the band back together after our 2020 lockdown we've not played together since Christmas 2019 so I'm really looking forward to that this summer and in the book I mentioned that I swam a relay of Loch Lomond up in Scotland with some friends and afterwards I felt inspired enough to want to do it solo Well, that plan got put on hold in 2020, but I'm hoping to be able to go up there this summer and swim the length of Loch Lomond in August as a solo swim, which is 21 miles, same as the Channel, but cold. (laughs) So I need to really start getting my cold water, cold water skin back on. Yeah, Um, so so lots of the same, basically, lots of the same, but more exciting opportunities. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, it, it sounds wonderful. You heard it here first. Anna's getting the band back together. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear about the next book, uh, preferably over a pint somewhere. That would be wonderful.
0: I would love that too.
1: But, um, thank you very much. Anna's podcast, Handmade, is available from all usual channels. And the book, also called Handmade, is published by Bloom- Bloomsbury and is out now. Anna, thank you so much for talking to me. I love the book. I've enjoyed talking to you about it and um, yeah I hope to hear from you again in future
0: thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure to chat to you um, and to tell the listeners all about the book and I really hope that they enjoy it too for more information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using at iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.